certainly have fears that there is a serial killer at loose in Perth. Sarah Spears, Jane Rimmer, Kira Glennon. And every time you saw a young girl walking by, you think, oh God, is she going to be the next victim? Now, one man stands accused. If police are right and Edwards is the Claremont serial killer, he's been hiding in plain sight for 20 years. A detective has revealed how an item taken during Jane Rimmer's post-mortem was given to her family in an act of kindness and compassion. Welcome to Day 24. Natalie Bongiolo joining you with Tim Clark and Alison Fan. And did both of you find this evidence um, somewhat startling? Mind-boggling. Yeah. Absolutely mind-boggling. We have never heard of anything like this. We're a homicide detective takes a clump of hair from a post-mortem from a murder victim takes it home, shampoos it, brushes it, puts a lackey band around it and puts it in a gift box and gives it to the family as an act of compassion or act of kindness, as she put. I mean, Tim, this has to be the most amazing evidence we heard today. Oh, it's extraordinary. I mean, I, 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 I've never heard of it as well. Now, that's not to say it, it doesn't happen. Um, and we all know how close the detectives were to this case and, and in some cases how close they have become to the families of the victims. But to hear that in the middle of a, a murder trial for the first time and, and in the context of, uh, you know, intimate and, and detailed evidence about um, structures and processes and, and, and who touched the body and, and how close they got and whether you could even see the body from the road to then have a detective saying, oh yeah, I, I, I took this piece of hair home with me and then, and then, and then gave it to the family was, was startling to say the least. Almost a throwaway line. We've been listening to all this procedural stuff and then, oh by the way, um, the pathologist gave me a clump of hair and this is, vital because the prosecution says that what links the accused killer Bradley Edwards is the fibres found or fibre found in Jane Rimmer's hair and here's a whole clump of it gone missing and shampooed and the defence didn't follow it up that closely either whether they well yeah they wouldn't I mean you can't well, help yeah, but that, wonder I mean, that, was, that was very surprising as me to me as, as well guys because uh, having probed so hard for, uh, you know, uh, several days on, on, you know, the precise, you know, exacting details of, of who, who was and timing and, 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 yeah. and, and, and what exhibits were logged and for that, for that, for a detective, you know, to be asked, well, did you touch the body or did you touch any part of the body? I mean, we were just all expected to her to say no, like all the other detectives had. But then just say, well, no, actually, yes, I did. For that not to be followed up, just to, even in a general sense of, of, you know, was this unusual? Had you ever done this before? From the defence was also quite surprising to me. And the crucial part, it is the hair. It's Jane Rimmer's hair. Hmm? And of course, it's we... There's no way that hair would have been tested for DNA back then. So no. who knows what could have been contained within that clump of hair? Well, she did talk about the fact that there was all sorts of stuff in her hair. There was vegetation, uh, there were fluids, which obviously had come from the body bag when she was put in the body bag, um, being plastic and zipped around. She said the hair had quite a bit of stuff in it. So, I mean, that's why <laughs> this detective takes it home and shampoos it. And brushes it, and then does and does what she does. Oh, it's just mind. It was bizarre, is what it was. Yeah, agreed. Very, very strange. So the detective we're talking about uh, is Detective Vicky Young, and she is at the post mortem. 
And what she did, what she did concede earlier or after cross examination was, yes, she 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 denied strongly that she was at the scene. But then, um, I'm sorry, not not at the scene, but near the body. But then they asked her what she wore, and she said she wore a, a navy blue corporate suit. And they said, "Oh, was it police issue?" And she said, "Oh no, as detectives, we buy our own clothes." So. The whole navy blue fibre thing is coming into the the picture here, and she was she got a bit antsy when they kept insisting that she'd got closer to the body than she said she had. Because earlier the police have come under under quite tight cross examination today about just how close they they went and the the flaws that have been picked out and the discrepancies and and even the one detective Barry Mott said yes he could have actually stepped on the body or in the area when he was transferring it. They the proce- procedures back then obviously not as strict as today, and they did walk around with um, no protective gear on except for protective gear for themselves. Yeah, so Detective Young was part of a homicide squad. She was at the scene, and she basically described today how she was with James' body all the way through from getting to the scene, seeing it there, uh, a, a very partial identification at the scene, went to the mortuary, was was there on the evening when they were trying to, she said, the, the very first priority was to identify who it was. Mm-hmm. She said she'd seen, when the body was extracted from the bush, seen a naval ring, a belly button ring, mm-hmm. which she knew that Jane wore. Uh, when it, when they went to the mortuary, then there was attempts to, to, to contact both families to get dental records to see if they could I, I, do a formal identification that evening. They could they could get hold of Sarah Spears's dentist, but not um, Miss uh, Rimmer's dentist. So th- it was ruled out that it was Sarah on that evening. And, and Detective Young basically said that was because I had two families hanging on the end of the phone to to to, to find out what who this who this young lady was that they'd found deceased in the bush. So he, the, the, I mean that was an intimate detail we'd never heard and maybe never even thought of. That they, they, it wasn't just Miss Rimmer's family that were desperately wanting to know. It was also Miss Spears's family because they they hadn't made the formal identification. That was made the following morning. Then Detective Young said she was in the post mortem, which we've just discussed. And then there were a, a couple of other examinations of Jane's remains over the, those days as well. And 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 Detective Young was there for for that too. So um, you know, a, a female detective put in the position where she she was basically Jane's guardian for, at, at post-mortem all the way through that process and she became quite emotional relaying that evidence as you as you as you can imagine she would be and um, earlier of course um, you're talking about Sarah Spears detectives did a th- uh, ordered a thorough search because they thought Sarah when they found Jane's body they thought Sarah Spears could be around there too so they did this body to what they call the body body line uh, you know, stepping forward, looking for Sarah Spears as well. So obviously, at this stage, they've they've found the body of Jane Rimmer. Uh, the families are both facing this agonising weight, which tells mm. us clearly that already they were making the connection between these two women. Oh yeah, well, it was it was basically after Jane went missing and then dis- was discovered that Macro Task Force was set up, um, and we've already heard that, that they they had clearly made the link. Uh, between Jane and and, and Sarah, uh, and that was, I mean, doubly confirmed today, as Ali's just mentioned, by the, uh, the first macro detective that we've heard from on the trial, and one of the first macro detectives on Jane's scene, um, who uh, Detective Robert Case, 
who described today how his responsibility at James Scene was to do a non-forensic search, so an investigative search of the area outside the inner cordon, the forensic cordon, which was around the body. And he described in, in quite um, sometimes colourful detail how he went about that. He, he called upon the tactical response group, the TRG, which in Western Australian police is the, is the best of the best. They're the, the armed officers that turned up for, for at sieges and those type of things. But they were called on because of their expertise and their regimented nature to, to search the area. And the extent of that search was described today, how they basically line searched all the fields, vegetation through there, not only looking for items concerning Jane, particularly her clothes, but as he as he described, we thought, hoped, feared that Sarah's Sarah Spears's remains might be there too, and they weren't looking for a body; they were looking for bones or teeth, basically, because she'd been missing for so long. And how long did they search for, and did they continue that search? Well, they they said days and weeks, didn't they, Ali? Yes, they, they did. He was going back. quite a different um, demeanour from this macro task force detective who was, as I described, fairly feisty in a news report because he just he was adamant and quite indignant that um, he had trampled on any crime scene. He said, oh, no. He said, he said I knew. And he was very aware of contamination issues, even though uh, they hadn't had the sophisticated DNA stuff. He said, I was very aware of how you treat crime scenes. And he was very, very forceful in setting it straight that he, that he was doing everything uh, possibly to try and solve this case and do it right. Uh, he even quoted one of the godfathers of forensic science in his evidence. Uh, he he, he mm. mentioned Locard's exchange principle, which I had to look up today, <laughs> which which is basically the, the the Bible of forensic science, which means you, whatever you touch or whatever you might lean on, yes. you will leave a trace behind. And yes. he, he, he said that was one of the first things he learned as a, as a junior police officer, and he took that with him all the way through his career, including on this crime scene. So he, he said he never got anywhere near Jane's body wouldn't have needed to touch it, as so many detectives have said, yeah. apart from Detective Young um, in the post-mortem. And, then, and, he, and he described the detail, that the, the, the extent the search went to. They, they, they sandbagged up the drain that was close to Jane's body to basically get, the, get rid of the water so they could search that. And later on, they actually went to the extent of chopping down all the vegetation and trees and clearing the area out of all the vegetation to see if they'd missed anything because of the denseness of the bush, uh, which, again, was was uh, hugely enlightening uh, to show the extent and the detail and the resources that were being placed into this investigation, even uh, after uh, before Kira's... Uh, Went missing. Well, it was demonstrating, I think, a new breed of detective and the way he looked at the scene. As you say, he mm. looked up things and he he uh, was even haranguing the defence team as they walked out um, <laughs> at lunchtime because he would, let me tell you, this is how we do it at a crime scene. He wasn't going to just sit there meekly and say, yes, no, yes, no. He was um, quite aggressive and um, interesting because up until then, everything was sort of just done like procedural and yes and no. And it could have been, I think words were used like an oversight to describe discrepancies in in things that had happened and were not correlating with the actual records, discrepancies, flaws and that. But he was no. He said, no, this is the way it's done. So they're searching the Wellard area extensively for weeks and they're obviously 
desperately hoping to find any further evidence from Jane, but they're obviously desperately hoping to find some signs of Sarah Spears because, and as we know, you know, the location of Sarah Spears has been the subject of speculation for decades. So they they didn't find anything at all. Not a thing. No, um, he he said Detective Casey quote was basically we we looked hard but we couldn't find a thing, um, and that goes for both investigations. We know of, of the discovery of that Telstra knife earlier, but d- despite all the expertise, all the eyes, all the all the man hours. Nothing. Um, no clothes. No pieces of jewellery uh, to, relating to to either of those young women. Did they do a similar search uh, when they found Kira Glennon's body? We haven't got to that yet, Nat. But ha- having looked in our archives and talked talked to reporters and, and and personnel that were on that scene, yes, they did. Uh, very extensive um, and. Detective Case said did, well, he, did, he mention, yeah. did mention some of that, yep. uh, but he, he didn't go into into the detail of uh, the, the Wellard scene. But he but he did say that that was a different type of bush, so it was a different type of different type of search. Uh, but uh, so yeah, the, the, the short answer is yes. Um, that, that similar type of uh, investigation was carried out after Kira's discovery. And it was virtually on the run, the, their learning curve too, because we heard from Barry Mott that the procedures were um, progressing and developing by the, in the year between 96 and 97, that they were becoming aware of more forensic ways. And so it was um, carefully noted, I think, by Barry Mott that he said he was alerting whatever they got. They were doing like professional development for their own uh, police officers on how to treat a crime scene. He said by 97, that had improved. So given that this is the first time we've heard from a member of the macro team, can you just explain again to listeners what macro is? Well, that was the task force that was set up specifically uh, to treat the Claremont serial killings, as they called it. Before that, there was a girl missing. Then they had someone found. And then they set up the macro task force, which I think was probably headed by Paul Ferguson, if I remember rightly, he, who is still to give evidence. And that, this was a team that was only concentrating on the serial killings and nothing else. Yeah, and it was it was to become the most expensive, longest-running, most intensive, mm. working time-intensive, work-intensive, evidence-intensive investigation in, in Australian legal history. Um there were various cold case reviews of the macro task force done over the over the years, um, and continual resources put in, which we will which we will hear about, which eventually led to the forensic breakthrough in two thousand and eight, two thousand and nine, that found that DNA sample under Ms. Clemens' fingernails, and resources kept being put in there was there were there were threats over the years that it was to be closed down i remember ali at least at least yeah. once there was some feverish speculation that it was that, that they were gonna they were gonna draw it draw it to a close but they never did well it was and dogged by controversy too because two of your senior detectives that i worked fairly closely with in those days um brandom and caporn were both um pushed aside because of the other mallard murder inquiry um, and or rather um, wrongful uh, jailing. And so they, 
the information that they got, they they were no longer part of it. So it disintegrated quite a bit. And, you know, it was so frustrating too for Paul Ferguson because um, it kept changing. And of course, they concentrated on different people. Uh, they couldn't ignore leads. We, they focused on, as we've talked about before, the public servant Lance Williams. They focused on a Claremont mayor. They focused on the taxi industry and just got them nowhere. And everyone was getting very, very frustrated. Did um, Robert Kay's talk today about the impact that this had on him in any way? He did. He did. He was asked, as virtually all those yes. witnesses have been so far, you know, do you have an independent recollection of these things or are you going by notes? And he said he had a very, very clear recollection of various aspects of it. He basically said... When it impacts your life, when it impacts your life so much at the time, it's something you never forget. Um, And obviously, that was also evident, not specifically said by Detective Young, but in the way that she gave her evidence and the way that she described what she'd done over those days uh, with Jane's body, it it obviously has had a, a, a huge and lasting effect on her as well. Uh, Yesterday we heard from Barry Mott and he's the witness who said he may have brushed past Jane Rimmer's body. He was questioned by defence today. What sort of issues came up in his cross-examination? Well, he spent... this Today was the second day in a row that he's being very, very closely examined. Um, He was asked what car he drove to the scene because most of them were on... just sort of were on call. Um, He said he came in the white... Holden, uh, Commodore station wagon, in plain clothes. He, was, he wasn't in uniform. Um, Tim, I didn't understand the... But the Commodore, they didn't go any further into that, did they? No, no. So they were asked whether it was a station wagon or a sedan. Um, Detective Young eventually remembered that the homicide cars were sedans, she thought. But um, Mr Mott was, was clear in his evidence that he believed that he, he might have got to the scene one of the scenes in a, in, a, in a Holden Commodore station wagon, which becomes potentially crucial down the track because if there was any chance of any fibres from the, that car getting onto the scene or on, onto the bodies, then you're looking at a potential different source than Mr Edwards and goes back to Monday's discussion with Damien about reasonable doubt. And there were other some other little sort of foibles and flaws in, in Mr Mott's um, evidence today, the the, the non-recording of of some trans, yeah. transfer of um, exhibits in the property tracing system, which in, in, instead turned up in a journal of his. Um, so just just little bits and bobs that the that the defence sort of keep turning over the odd stone here and there and here and there and finding um, things that were done absolutely perfectly, but. I've got to say, I mean, there's no, there's no smoking gun from the defensive side so far to, to, to absolutely, you know, show that the, 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 the methods were, were deeply flawed. But just the odd thing now and again that, that crops up. It, it um, does relate to a couple of questions that we have had from listeners. Uh, this one from Grace, and they are asking about the car and where does the station wagon come into it all and. Uh, was there evidence such as DNA or fibre found in the white station wagon, etc.? So people are questioning the different types of cars and how it fits into everything. Right. So the, 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 the Telstra 
um, car that Mr. Edwards drove at the time of Jane's disappearance and Kira's disappearance, they've narrowed that down via the Telstra documents to this particular model of Holden Commodore station wagon, which he drove at that time, which can be proved, and then which many, many years later, basically on, actually on the same day that Mr. Edwards was arrested in 2016, they the police rocked up to some poor chap's house up in the hills who had bought the car uh, down the track and was was still driving it around. And they seized that car. And in her opening, Miss Barbara Gallo said that when they tested that car, there were some of these blue fibres, which we now know, think, come from Mr... The, the type of shorts and pants that were worn by Telstra workers at the time. Some of those fibres were still in that car. And obviously we know that allegedly some of those fibres were on the bodies and some of the grey fibres were on the bodies are said to come from that car and only that car, that particular particular type of upholstery inside that car. So that, that that's where that link is. The, the car that Mr Edwards was driving at the time of Sarah's disappearance was different, we think, or they certainly had access to other cars, but the, his day-to-day regular car was different. But that is not as significant because obviously we don't have Sarah's remains to have any physical evidence from. So just in in wrapping up this idea of that the fibre evidence, it it possibly puts the fibre evidence into doubt, if one of the officers drives a Holden, you know, Commodore Commodore. station wagon Mm. to the crime scene, gets out of the car, walks through the scene there's the potential that fibres have come from a police car as opposed to Bradley Edwards' car. Precisely, yeah. And then those blue fibres, which is what Ali was mentioning earlier, the prosecution say there is only one possible source of those, which is those Telstra pants, because of the particular colour, dye and, mm. and, and, and style of material that was used. But we don't we don't know that for certain yet, obviously, because none of that fibre evidence has been brought forward. None of the experts have given evidence, and it, it is quite significant to me, as Ali mentioned earlier, that every single person that has come anywhere within that circumference of either of those bodies has been asked what they were wearing, whether what, what clothes were you wearing, what colour were they, were they work issue, were they standard issue, were they police issue, were they your own clothes? So that's all trying to establish a potential different source of these fibres. I thought it was quite interesting that um, Barry Mott also said that uh, the vegetation surrounding Jane Rimmer's body was also, any of it which was clinging to her body, was also put in the body bag. Mm -hmm. And a lot of this was all mixed up in her hair. They said they had foliage, vegetation, fluids and so forth. Um, And that vegetation has come from the vegetation that covered her body uh, that was also pushed in with, by bare hands from one of the police officers. So I think, who was that? That Was that Mott? Uh, no, that, that was, was somebody else. That was another, uh, it was the forensic ha- officer last... last yes, Hamala. Yes, uh, Ham- Rob Hamala. Hamala, yeah. yeah. So you've got bare hands, you've got vegetation, you've got this so-called crucial fibre evidence, and it's, I don't know, it doesn't... It hasn't well. We wait to I see to where the experts come in with the, and then there'll be experts against experts mm. on the actual forensic side of it from the laboratory side of it. Yeah, and it, I think to, 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 to listeners and um, to, to the general public that have been coming to the trial every day, it probably seems a little bit 
uh, out of uh, out of sync, out of uh, you know, not in a neat pattern so far. But that's where the closing arguments in, in several months' time become so important, and that's you know, both both sides, prosecution and defence, will probably be given a week or two to, to bring those arguments together before they actually relate them to the judge in court. Because you, you, you go back, the, the, the lawyers will go back through the transcripts and bring all these little bits of, of, of evidence, disparate evidence from the various witnesses together and then try and paint that picture. Ms. Barbara Gallo will obviously try and paint the picture of a, of a professional, uh, you know, cohesive investigation where, yes, there might have been the odd slip-up procedurally, but nothing that would be fatally floor an investigation whereas Mr. Jovich will try and bring them all together and he will point out all these different little bits over the course of the, the investigation which he will try and bring together to, 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 to bring some doubt. It does feel as though the trial is moving quite swiftly in terms of the amount of people who are coming through as witnesses. Is there any indication that it could be shorter than what was anticipated? Not, not, not specifically that, but Miss Barbara Gallo even last week said that the, the um, even forensic evidence is going a little bit quicker than she anticipated. So we are ahead of schedule. But as we as we've said so many times, once we get to the fibres, once we get to the DNA, that is going to be a minute step by minute step forward. So uh, there is no. Indication that we that we will be longer or shorter than we think, but we are progressing um, pretty well. Yeah. Any indication of who will take the stand tomorrow? I think we've got more uh, uh, police witnesses, don't we? There's well, there's one or two names that were given that didn't pop up, but um, I'm not sure. We were also stunned today by by this clump of hair being taken home that we mm. we sort of you know, didn't follow through on that because that was to me was just so bizarre. We thought everything was becoming quite procedural and methodical and then that sort of really blew, blew my mind yeah, yeah. Mm. I, th- I, we, well, I, th- I think it's one of the um, uh, the, uh, the more forensic officers um, who, who worked at the scenes um, and um, from today's evidence we can we can glean that there w- there'll certainly will be now more possibly more uh, macro detectives ready to to be able to sort of say what they did, and and then we go, we, then we get into the actual post mortem videos and photographs, and, and and go through that process as well. So potentially towards the end of this month, we're likely to hear from the actual pathologists, not Dr. Margolius, unfortunately, because she passed away as we mentioned um, a, a, several years ago, but doc, Dr. Clive Cook. Uh, um, and Dr. Jerry Cadden, who were two of the other pathologists involved in those uh, post-mortems, that they will certainly have to give evidence and probably sooner rather than later. Why haven't we heard from Paul Ferguson? I'm not sure, Ali. I I don't know. He was the head of the macro task force. He was the head of the macro task force. Uh, Has he been uh, called? He he definitely definitely is being called. Um, mm. He definitely is being called, as will all the senior macro detectives. I, I, I'm not. I'm not sure. Maybe, maybe they're keep keeping him to the end, or towards the end of this portion, or maybe later on, mm. so he can sum up 
the, we're not the investigation. Told. We're not told from day to day who's coming. They, that's a, quite an unusual trial. Usually you do get a witness list, but we're not told to the very day. And only through the police liaising with us with names are we told that morning. Yeah. But he, I mean, he will be definitely one of the most anticipated mm. witnesses because, uh, as head of the task force, he was he was privy to more information than probably anyone in Perth at, at that time and, and since. So his insights will be absolutely fascinating. And is Bradley Edwards still watching intently? Is there any change in his behaviour at all? Interesting mm-hmm. little tidbit this morning that he'd taken his glasses off for the first time in court, as, as he did yesterday. I, I hadn't seen him without glasses in court before. Um, I, I'm not sure why. Um, he certainly wasn't looking at the uh, the sensitive material, the videos that were being shown today uh, during the time that I spent in court. I did watch him watching, and, and he wasn't watching. He was just staring off. Um, he did so, nod to somebody in the gallery yesterday. Tim, do you, are you aware of family that are there? Yeah, his mum and dad have been there. Um, they, they came yesterday afternoon, and they were, they were certainly there at all, all day today. Uh-huh. Um, and, and they did spend some time in court pre-Christmas as well. Um, so uh, I, and I'd seen Mr Edwards interact not verbally, but sort of non-verbally with them before. Oh. And, uh, and I, that was probably the case again I would say Do family members in any way interact with others in the in the public gallery? Well Mr and Mrs Edwards um, the parents of Bradley Edwards, they have had supporters with them. Uh, from from my viewing of it, they they haven't they have been there just as a couple, but they have had people with them as well. Um, on the other side of the, the aisle, um, Mr Glennon, Dennis Glennon, was there again today, and he obviously has a very very close relationship with with several of the police officers. They 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 are always. Uh, around him or certainly liaising with him or interacting with him during the court breaks and things. Um, presumably just he's been sure there he's every got, day. He's, he has. Yes, he has. he's been there every day. Absolutely um, stoic. Oh. Still obviously very engaged and, and, and wanting to be uh, as, as close to the process as he can. And his other daughter, Kira's sister, has been there a few times with him as well. Yeah, yeah I haven't seen Denise since Christmas, but she yeah. certainly was, a, was quite a prominent presence um, before the break. And are family members taken to a secure area during lunch breaks and, and court breaks so that they're not waiting with general public in the corridors? Yes, they are. Mm. Yeah, there is an anti-room that, that, that certainly family of families of the victims have been able to access, which takes them away from the general hubbub outside the court. Um, but allied to that, Dennis has also been basically taking his lunch and taking his breaks in the cafe downstairs that's in the main body of the court. So, yeah, there is a, an element of privacy, but um, and the police have obviously done or detectives have done everything they can to to make it as easy as they can i spoke to him the other day he was quite weary because there was someone there who said they were from ireland and they wanted to speak to him but he was very wary because he said that um he came up to me afterwards and said oh i just don't want to speak to any journalists from ireland who um have approached him before um and he was fairly cautious about that Mm. as you would be Mm. (laughs) yeah and I expect that uh, Bradley Edwards' family members would also have a room that they could go to as well. No, no, no I don't I think so. Seen no, that. no, 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 no they're, they're not given any concession. No, 
No, they just they just come in and out regularly. Yeah, um, he's an accused man. He's the you know there's no special concessions for him. The victims are given a special private room. No, they just come and go, and they're in the general gallery on the other side of um, where Dennis Glennon and police are sitting. Well, thank you both very much. You'll be back in court tomorrow for much more of the same and a lot mm, no, more Something forens- we don't know. <laughs> it's quite quite different every day. Yeah. <laughs> a lot more forensic investigation. Mm. And you can email us at claremontpodcast at wanews.com.au. Thank you again for all the feedback. Um, we're really enjoying reading your emails and some of you um, are following very closely and and giving us some really interesting ideas and thoughts on how it's all going. So we look forward to having you all tomorrow for Day 25 of Claremont in Conversation. This podcast was hosted by Natalie Bongiolo, produced by Kate Ryan and Alicia Preedy, and recorded in the studios of Seven West Media. Audio files were provided from the archives of the Seven Network and the West Australian. Sign up for daily emails and all the latest on the Claremont trial at thewest.com.au. Enjoying this podcast? If the story behind the headline matters to you, then you can count on thewest.com.au to deliver. For more on Claremont The Trial, follow the live blog, watch the nightly news updates, and sign up for daily email updates at thewest.com.au. Subscribe now for just a dollar a day at thewest.com.au.